I mean, the potato is one of the one of the great miracles in the tuba world. That's true. Uh, as far as <laughs> tubers go, I mean, yeah, the potato, the, the humble potato is is it's on the in the top of the higher. I mean, I'd take a potato over most things. I, I think it's it's the kind of prince of of vegetables. I, I mean, a baked potato. I mean, you know, time stops when you bite into a great baked potato. It's all like it's like a great song. It just knocks the clock off the wall. I'm Jordan Kissner, author of the essay collection Thin Places, and this is Thresholds, a weekly series of conversations with writers and artists about moments of epiphany or transformation that changed their lives and their work. A moment that they stepped across, like a threshold, into something new, and the way that experience changed everything they wrote afterward. Today's guest is more used to speaking through his violin, or accordion, or flute, or guitar, or mandolin, than through the page. Warren Ellis is an Australian musician and composer. He's best known as part of the rock groups Dirty Three and Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. And with Nick Cave, he's also written the soundtrack to a number of feature films like The Road, The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford, Wind River, and lots more. But recently, he's the author of a book called Nina Simone's Gum, which is a book of photographs and memoir and lyric reflection on a peculiar experience that happened to him in 1999 when he saw Nina Simone play her last ever live show in London. After the show, he crawled up on stage and stole the piece of used chewing gum Simone had had in her mouth at the start of the set. The story of that gum how it changed his life, and how the gum's holy relic-like effect began to ripple outward the more people learned of it, is the subject of his book and this conversation. Then I was in the car and I was driving along and I'm on tour at the moment with Nick Cave and I was like, Nick, what's a threshold? And he's like, well, it's an entry, you know. And then he Googled it quick. He looked it up in his dictionary. And... um. So, yes, I, I, I sort of conferred as to make sure I had the meaning of it right. But, um, you know, I thought I was writing a book about these beautiful images I had of this piece of chewing gum that I was I'd taken care of, this most sacred sort of personal totem that I had that I, that I kind of at one point just thought everything that I'd done flowed from there, you know, and it was just this thing for me that I had in my drawer. Um, and I didn't even want to open it because the the kind of what was awesome about it was absolutely totally invisible. You know, it was the sort of idea of Nina Simone touched it, and you can't you couldn't see anything about it. What 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 was wonderful about it to me, and I didn't want that to escape. So I just never looked at it. I, I've never touched it ever in my life. But when I looked at it, I saw that I had to kind of look at, I was convinced actually by by other people that I needed to look at why I cared. Um, and I was like, someone said, why did you take it? And I said, well, anybody would have. And they said, no, well, there was 2,000 people at the concert, but you were the one who took it. Um, and I'd never thought about it. Like I'd never even questioned why I did did it. And I think looking at at the larger, the, the bigger picture of this story that I wrote or this the, the book that I've written, I was able to see um, certain threads in my life where pe- people, I'd come across people who'd, who'd 
said something to me that just, or music I'd listened to that just irrevocably changed the course of my life. And I think we all have that. Um, and I, I guess in part this book is an acknowledgement of gratitude to, to those people. Um, it's why I dedicated it to teachers, any teacher, whoever that may be. Um, a teacher might be your kid. It might, might can be anybody, someone who played you, you know, John Coltrane for the first time and you, you just thought you'd heard the voice of God. Um, you know, there's moments in your life that you know you can't come back from. And I, I, th- I think also uh, another, th- another thing that I've noticed with age is that, like, say, when, when I started out playing music, I, I really wouldn't listen to anybody, um, anybody's advice, really. Um, but a lot of that came from a lack of confidence in what I was doing. And uh, it's not so much about being more confident now, but I noticed when I did started doing soundtracks, really, when it came outside of a band um, setting where in a band you're just doing what you want to do, nobody tells you what to do, at least in, not in the bands, 33 or the Bad Seeds, it's all internal and you decide internally and decisions are made quickly and you, you arrive at a result. And there's never been a label saying, hey, we don't hear the hit, hey, you know, what is this? This isn't what we're expecting. Um, but when, when, I started, and when, when I started working on soundtracks, and in particular the assassination of Jesse James, which was like the second or third score that I'd ever done, the director, Andrew Dominic, he came back and said, look, I don't like any of this stuff that you've sent in. And I've never really heard those words before. Um, and Nick is neither, you know. So in that moment, I realised that I thought, well, first of all, I thought, oh, this is the day everything stops, you know, we can't do this, you know. And and then I took a step back and said, okay, well, let's start with a clean slate and see what what can come what we can come up with. Um, and th- listening to him and 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 getting being more critical about what we were doing resulted in that becoming so much better than I think we initially were aiming for. And and I think that definitely fed through, like, that working with a team of people, um, you know, like the the film scoring that that I've done has had the most liberating effect. And I I thought the opposite, that it was, you know, nobody's going to tell me what to do. You know, I was like in my thirties when I was when I started them, and mid thirties, and 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 um, I just thought nobody's going to tell me what to do. But a lot of that was about my own insecurities about my abilities, um, and feeling threatened, and and the way to react to that was just like, well, fuck that, you know, I'm I'm not kind of uh, I'm not listening, you know, you don't know what you're talking about. And I think for me that was a a big step, a threshold in a way of me understanding that. Like in order to move forward, I had to kind of be challenged by somebody else. And that was a pivotal moment for me uh, that I could see in the editing process of the book. And, you know, the book was just a total kind of anxiety ride, um, stepping into a domain that I have no relation to at all beyond telling stories verbally um, and reading. But the actual writing of it was so far out of my wheelhouse um and and i felt so incredibly vulnerable doing it because 
I just couldn't tell most of the time if it was any good or if it was just rubbish. Um, and and I think my, because I would sort of open myself to the editing process, doing scores and stuff like that, that I was much more um, open to that in this process, you know, with the book. Um, I, I, I don't think, I, don't, I definitely couldn't have attempted to, to do this 20 years ago. I wouldn't have had the story to start with, but I, I, I just wouldn't have had had the kind of tenacity or or been prepared to be spoken to, um, and people to be critical about things and stuff like that. So, I guess that was some sort of threshold. Yeah. What do you feel like um, has changed about your work or even yourself since? learn since since that change since learning how to um um i think there was a point where where you know for me it's always been about the, the hope that one day i'll do something that's really incredible and that's the thing that's pushed me ever since i sort of got in a band with jim and mick in dirty three and then working with Nick and then moving through with the Bad Seeds 33 and and score work and things like that. I, I have to believe what I'm working on has moved on from what's gone before and, and that's the, the, first, the first kind of sign to me that what we're working on is going somewhere. Like if, if it sounds like what we did before or, or what we've already done, um, there's just no risk being taken. Um, so, so for me, I, I, I've always had to feel that, but I also I, I always have to feel like it's the best thing that I can do at that particular point in time. That I, I can't do any better than that. But once, once, it, once it's gone, I want to do better next time. So, uh, you know, I think if if I thought I'd made a masterpiece, I'd open a fish and chips or a potato shop. You know, I'd go and sell. I'd probably sell sell apples or something or, or something like that. Like I, you know, for for me, for me, you know, when when I was a, as long as I can remember, to be a musician, to be a writer, to be an artist, to be a painter, to be anything in the creative world, was such a noble pursuit. Um, it was always the thing that I kind of looked up to, and and I still have problems considering myself as a musician or, or or whatever you know i i i don't really kind of associate myself with that because it always seemed like uh, these people were up on such a sort of high shelf you know um it's it seemed like such like i said a, a noble pursuit um i think how my work has changed how how it's changed like i've always felt uh, you know like that that each new thing was was a challenge and I guess that's the thing that the work has changed. You know, I I, I find myself working in different. You know, I, I play less violin. I, I do a lot of synthesized synthesizers and electronic stuff at the moment. And I'll be looking for a new road soon. You know, when when we start working on a new record. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I I think I think it changed that that. That point I'm talking about changed because it, it allowed me to take a step back and not be just satisfied because I felt, you know, uh, 
that I that I that I that I felt um, threatened by something. You know, like I'll I'll take things on now, and, and you know, for me, like I said, the scoring work that that you know, you could make something that you thought was really good, and the director, whether they're right or wrong, will say, I just don't get it. And I remember this this incident, you know, that that when we were doing Jesse James and and we were trying to get the last cue in and, and they had this temp cue in there and anything we did just didn't work and it's like you're not going to get this cue, you know, like because the temp cue is going to just stick to it and they're going to fall, they've fallen in love with it and you can't do anything. And then I remember, remember Andrew just saying to us like, I just don't get it, I don't like it, it doesn't go anywhere and I, I was convinced at that moment that this was the day that it all stopped, you know, and I went into this sort of shame spiral or something about it. I was like, oh, fuck, this is it, you know, it's all over. And, uh, you know, I mean, I can be a bit dramatic about things, but then I just walked out into the studio and just started from scratch, you know, and and then me and Nick got in there and started working on it and and that became this this, uh, piece called Song for Bob, which is like the NQ of Jesse James, which is, you know, probably probably one of the, the sort of, best pieces we've ever composed together I think and always remember that that came out of a moment when I was ready to give up um and at that point I decided okay turning up you're there you know do something um and it, it also taught me to to cut to sort of like get ideas out and say something um which seems really important and I, I think actually it's what 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 for me the writing the book was about that, that that like if you have an idea get it out there and then people will rally around it um and as in the case with 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 this little story of the chewing gum that people rallied around it with love and care you know and all driven by absolutely nothing which is beautiful <laughs> Let me um, back us up and ask if you could just briefly for anyone who's listening that hasn't read your book yet, um, give us the the synopsis of the thing with the, of the story of the chewing gum and how you came to have it. Okay, well, um, twenty years ago in, in nineteen ninety nine, I was uh, I was fortunate enough to see one of the last concerts of Nina Simone in, uh, in London, and Nick had programmed her. Nick Cave had programmed her for a festival that he he was um, the curator of called Meltdown, and. Uh, you know, she was already in, you know, we knew she was in really poor health and living in the south of France and various reports were coming out about, you know, her her, her state of mind and things like that. You know, she'd fired at her neighbours and things like that with a pistol or something and, you know, there, there, was all, there was all this sort of like thing of, you know, they didn't even know if she'd turn up or not, you know, and, and so, you know, to actually be sitting in the room and, and that she arrived was already an event. But um, then the the and, and I'd you know been absolutely kind of blown away by um, Nina Simone 
when I when I first encountered her in in the eighties, and I had never really seen very much of her because YouTube wasn't a thing, and you needed a friend with videos to show you um, if you wanted to see anything, and and or someone with a record collection, you know, if you couldn't you couldn't buy them yourself. So it was very much a kind of communal sharing of thoughts and stuff, you know, and you were connected by uh, this great love of music or cinema or literature. And 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 I, I knew I knew pictures of her and things like that, but it was primarily her sort of music and her performance and what I knew about her that spoke to me. And and I, you know the, the idea of seeing her live was just something I never thought would have happened in my life. Like seeing Alice Coltrane, who I, I managed to see as well, and I just never thought that that would I would ever see that. Um, and and so I went to this concert, but. What, what transpired in the concert was this in, incredible transformation of religious proportions and, and this spiritual, this communal, communal, this communion that took place between the audience and her. And it, it was just one of those moments that was life-changing. And in, in the sort of the throng of, uh, of you know, I don't know, ex- ecstasy, I sort of had noticed her walking out on stage and she sort of came out really difficult with much difficulty sort of walked on stage and just raised her fist in the air and she was eating chewing gum and I sort of noticed that and it was the most extraordinary image she had a cigarette smoking smoking and, and eating chewing gum and with a fist in the air and and it was really difficult for her to walk even and and she sat down and just sort of stuck it on the piano and just started playing and this concert was just so unbelievable and life-changing and afterwards I sort of crawled on the stage and had a look and the chewing gum she'd actually stuck on her towel. So I just folded the, the towel over it and, and stuck it under my arm and walked into the green room and a mate of mine who I was with who'd been a, a really great influence on me. Um, I write about him in the book, Mick Geyer, and I, I think anyone who reads it there's probably a Mick guy in everybody's life, just somebody who passes on information to you. They feel it's their duty to kind of educate you and point you in the right direction. Um, and I've had a lot of these people in my life. Um, they have this radar for greatness and they're, they're able to show you things like a straight road to something, you know, with they sort of they do all the work and they go, listen to this. Um, he did that with Karen Dalton, you know. I don't think we would have Melbourne would have ever heard of Karen Dalton without him. He must have had the only copy of that record, and and we all heard Karen Dalton through him, you know, back in the the sort of eighties. Um, and anyway, I, he gave me the bag, uh, this Tower Record bag, and I took it, and then I kept it in my possession for twenty years, and um, eventually it it it. it, it saw the light of day through a documentary called 20,000 Days on Earth where Nick and I uh, discuss this concert and I tell him that I've got the chewing gum and he's like, I I don't think he knew or if he knew, I I don't know, maybe he was trying to get it out of me. He knew about it. I I think he he knew I took it, but I don't think he knew that I still had it. Anyway, I'd taken care of this thing and it, it, it had built up this incredible sort of significance just for me, you know, I built my studio around it. Um, the first time I had a, had a place to work was 
when I took the gum and stuck it in a room and then built a studio, a little place to work around it. Um, and 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 he he was doing an exhibition in Denmark at the Royal Danish Library and uh, asked me if there was something I wanted to contribute. And and um, I said, would you like the chewing gum? And so it started like that. And we constructed a kind of marble plinth and two burglar alarms, one on the glass. Uh, you know, there, there was certain specific security measures that needed to be taken into account with it. And then I I said about like I'd never I'd never even like taken it out of the house before, except for the first two years when it used to travel with me everywhere in my briefcase. Um, and then I realised I was going to lose it, so I I I I took it over to London and and had it copied in silver and gold, and and it said about this this incredible um, uh, this inc- inc- incredible sort of thing that happened in front of me, like Hannah Uprichard, the woman who um, made the copies for me, you know, she got it straight away and, and, and she cycled it around London and made sure that, you know, if anyone was going to destroy it, she wouldn't let them make the copy and she ended up doing it. And I just noticed everybody rallying under this um, this little item um, of that, that I had and it was bringing out this care and love in people that just totally blew me away, and and then and then it became sort of symbolic of something else, you know, that that, that I'd seen in the studio that I'd never been able to put into words, and that that idea that ideas need love and care in order to have a chance of flying, and and I've seen just the the most simplest idea of two notes that you fish out of somewhere and you just hang on to them until they make it or they don't. But the the actual act of trying to get them somewhere is really a beautiful thing to watch. It it strikes me that you used the word a religious experience when describing that Nina Simone concert Um, because so much of the way that you write about this piece of chewing gum and seem to kind of be in a relationship with the chewing gum it reminded me of relics of like holy relics um and even i forget who it is that she's speaking to you about the gum it might have been the woman who who said holy 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 Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and 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 mister who's a a designer from a fashion designer from belgium um i've had a a sort of I've known her for for a long time now. We go back to the sort of late '90s, and and when I sent her the pictures, she just sent me a text, and and I include them in the book, you know. But she's just like, this is a holy relic. This is like a hair of Christ, and it just absolutely blew me away, you know that that beautiful thing that that could bring that out in somebody, and, and you know, art doesn't exist things don't exist unless people breathe life into them. And I think that's the beautiful thing that I was witnessing, the kind of the wonder and awe of people when it's engaged. It's just the most powerful thing and and you can do anything it feels like um, with that. And it's based, it can be quite often based on absolutely nothing at all, just blind faith or something like that, you know. Um, And I think it was other people... alerting me to what it was when you know when I presented when I went in and I, you know I was 
Faber had approached me to write a memoir and I just wasn't interested in doing anything at all like that because I just don't find my life interesting really and and there's so many other lives I'd rather read about you know I'd rather read about a taxi driver or a shoemaker or something that or somebody you know or you know somebody working on you know the front line of the pandemic or something it seemed or somebody trying to cure cancer I don't know I, I just kind of didn't feel like I've never been interested in, in, in telling my story or a memoir. Um, you know, there's great memoirs. I just don't think I, I have one in me. But but it, it, it was, you know, when, when I saw this thing sort of developing around me and these pictures were coming in, I, I called Dan at Faber back and said, hey, uh, you know, look, I've got this thing happening um, I've got a bit of chewing gum from Nina Simone and I explained him what was going on. He said, come in and present it. And I I just went and sat around the table and Alexa, who was there, as soon as I sort of opened the box, she just burst into tears when she saw it. And 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 I saw this thing happen, you know, like I'd be in a restaurant and someone would be looking at my copy I wear around my neck and they'd say, what is it? And I'd say, oh, it's a copy of Nina Simone's chewing gum. And they would visibly well up in tears um, and that's where I saw that this it's what we bring to that, you know, our, our love for her, um, how she's moved us, how she's, you know, moved our soul, like just, you know, and, and music can be such a spiritual thing. M- music can, can speak to us in, in such an emotional way so directly we don't even have to understand why or how it works. Um, you just know if, if a bit of music or a song has spoken to you, that that it's affected you in a, in a way that you, you can't describe half the time, um, and, and and the it's it seems like a direct a direct route to our emotions. Um, so I, when, when I saw this happening, I, I, I you know it, it was really like this thing. Like I said, I've experienced in the studio. I've, I realized that it needed to be in the world for people who wanted to gather around it and, you know, st- stand around it and look at it. That it, 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 it sort of should be out there and it was like letting something that you've made go. It doesn't exist until it's in people's hands. It, it, you know, music doesn't exist until people have listened to it or a book until people have read it. And then it becomes part of a sort of, you know, communal consciousness. Um, and, and at that point, it just seemed to be such a sort of um, metaphor for for the creative process, and and the 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 what you know I was aware I was writing about stuff that could be really pretentious and and or you know like I could I don't know I, I tried to sometimes like write it in a bigger way and make big ideas out of it, but it always fell flat. And any time I just wrote about it in an in the naive way that I thought about it, it seemed to land better. So. That was a part of the editing process as well. I mean, the whole writing process for me was trying to work out how to move in a world that I had no idea of what to do. Yeah, um, I, I wanted to ask you about that because you write in the book that originally you had not intended to write anything at all. And how were you no, persuaded to, no. to write? Well I, I, well, I guess that's the thing that quite often a lot of the, the, the things that we're thinking about, they are actually going on in our head and we just 
we don't realize that not everybody else is on the same page. So I was seeing all these texts and, you know, watching these people's actions and and seeing these images. Like I, I would get so emotional when I'd see pictures of this gum being cast and, you know, I had hundreds of them. And and I was uh, it was really moving for me to see the care people were taking and you know get a text the chewing gum has been taken you know like it's I've just collected it I can't trust a a courier with it I'm going to get it on foot and I'm going to deliver it by hand you know and then when they took it to that they got a seat for my violin on the plane and they put the gum in there and they'd send me photos you know it was there were real acts of kind of care that that I I was just so moved by. Um, and and um yeah yeah I, I was just kind of yeah r- really blown away by by all that um did it require some convincing to uh to get you to agree to have it be a written book as well as photos well you know i like, i mean I, I i go into this in in the book but you know, I initially, like, you know, you asked before, I, I did think that the pictures were enough. And when I told, and, and I, I presented it to Faber around a table and they gave me a contract on the spot and I hadn't written a word. And I didn't really know what that meant at the time. Like they, they contracted me for a certain amount of words. And in my head, I thought that's got to be about 10 pages so I can just walk everybody through the process of what happened. But then I can tell you, ladies and gentlemen, that, 20,000 words isn't 10 pages. And, and, um, I, and Nick had offered to write an introduction when I told him about it. He's like, oh, what a beautiful idea for a book. And I, in my head it was more like a, a kind of art book with photos and things. And when I sat down to, to write my part of it, I just didn't know what to do. And I, 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 I told the story to a lot of people just to gauge what they'd made of it and I would sit and talk about it and people would say things to me and they'd either get it or they wouldn't. But but when I sat down to write it, I, I could write point forms, but then I couldn't move it onto the page. And then a, a really dear friend, Hal Wilner, died uh, during the, the, the pandemic. He, he, he was in New York. And um, I reconnected with a, with a really old dear friend, Oren Moverman, who's a script writer and a filmmaker. And uh, we, we sort of caught up on a Zoom chat to because Hal was our friend, you know, and we went, got on to what, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm trying to write a book, but I'm absolutely stumped. And he's like, let me talk to you and let, let me interview you and we can transcribe it. And so I got, I got the story out with him and, and he's and told him that, and he goes, I'm going to ask you questions and it's going to be about your life, but just let me persist. And I'm like, I don't want it to be about me. And he goes, look, you don't see this, but this is about you, why you cared, why you care about it. Um, and I'm like, I, I just don't see that. And and thanks to Oren, like kind of persisting with me, I, I ended up, you know, I guess writing some sort of fragmented um memoir or something about it like it's 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 glimpses of things for me once I started looking at why I cared about it uh, and realized that where I'd put it you know I'd I'd built shrine for it and I I had it in a room and I had a bus of Beethoven around it and you know Beethoven you know 
was a, had appeared to me three times and I, in spirit form and and I realized that I'd had these supernatural experiences through my life and it was always connected with light and, and intense changes in the atmosphere like the concert of Nina Simone and it was linked to my father reading prayers to us reciting prayers to us every night when we were kids standing at the bedroom door and I remembered these moments of I don't know some some attempt to find some spirituality in things I, I, I don't really know but I was able to draw a thread through um, some narrative thread through aspects in my life um, that that I guess that had been thresholds you know like I didn't really know that they were that but it, it also enabled me to see I mean this isn't a plot spoiler by any means but at a certain point, it enabled me to see that the little guy, because I, I sort of do a jump back in time at the start and st- start with a shared experience between me and my brother, a sort of supernaturally fantastic experience um, that, you know, if you've read the book, uh, it's, it's totally true. Everything in the book is true. Uh, I've never, I haven't changed anything for the narrative. So everything I write about, I believe in like a thousand percent. But I realised that the kind of little guy that sat there in awe of this this thing that we witnessed was the same as the same guy that you see on stage every night playing. That that somehow, with through my life of, of being encouraged and by people, um, I maintained this sense of sort of awe and wonder for things. And I realise, I just think, I think that we all have that in us, you know, an aspect, you know, like you realise you're getting older when you look in the, in the mirror, but when you're not looking in the mirror, you kind of more or less just feel like the same certain person, you know. Um, and I think I, I realised that, that the, the actual, the guy I'm writing, the person I'm writing about at the start is still the same person at the end. Um, for me, it, when when I when I I reached out to my brother, my older brother, and had an affirmation about that story, and when I put the picture of the three of us, I realised that kid in there in that picture was the same person writing the book, and I realised also too that chronologically it didn't matter at all where I jumped around because I was just talking about the same thing. Um, and, and act, you know, it allowed me to just make big jumps in time. You know, I could have Nick talking about something 20 years ago and then jump back 40 years to something and then jump forward 40 years to me and him talking about the gum. And, and, and actually the, the, the chronological order of the narrative um, was way better served if it was just it didn't matter, you know. Um, it's the essence of the story. And, and, I, and I think... You know, it's been out for a while uh, uh, over here now and I've done a few um, in-stores and that, you know, and, and discussions. And it, it's really interesting to, to hear people tell me about their stories, you know, about things that they're connected to, these little signposts that we have that that become like kind of um, reminders. You know, like w- when somebody dies and you sit and talk to somebody about them and it keeps them alive. And you you might have I don't know like a tobacco tin you know that the smell of it immediately reminds you of your grandfather or whatever you know like a scent or something. 
these things of memory are important to us because it's what defines us. And, and it's like that, that beautiful art of storytelling and passing things on by word of mouth. That's what keeps these things alive and reminds us that we're human. And so I, I think, I, you know, I think the book really is it's just my take on, on something that a lot of people um, experience, you know, I think the difference is that I had this thing, this gum that, that for all intents and purposes, is a holy relic and that I'd taken care of this relic, you know, for 20 years and it was time to let the world share it. Um, but I think, you know, a lot, of, a lot of people have things that are so personal to them that if anybody else found them, it just does. We bring that significance to them, you know, with the story that comes attached to it and the emotion that, that comes attached to it. And it's absolutely nothing, you know, and that's what I find really beautiful about it, that, that it's everything as well. Thresholds is a production of Lit Hub Radio. We're produced by Drew Broussard and Justin Alvarez. Music and editing by Laura Faye Oshavud of Arthur Moon. Our art is by Kirsten Huber. Special thanks to Farrar Strauss and Drew. I'm Jordan Kissner. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at jordan.kissner. We'll see you next week. <laughs>